And you made that love explicitly clear on Calvary's cross when your son Jesus suffered and bled and died for us. Thank you, Lord, for that expression of love. God, we pray today that you would bless the preparation and the proclamation of your holy word. Anoint our ears, our hearts, our lips, our minds, that we may experience you today in a marvelous way. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you to turn with me once again to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and I want to read just four verses, beginning with verse 1. Paul wrote, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clinging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith that I could remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up. I want to preach the first part of this um, series of sermons on love entitled, What Love Really Is. What Love Really Is. This is the month of February. And in the month of February, love is in the air. We look forward to uh, Valentine's Day and exchanging cards and sending well wishes of love. Sister Pickett and I lived in Richmond, Virginia, during our seminary days. And the, the slogan there was, Virginia is for lovers. Love, though, is one of the most used words in the English language. And it's also one of the most misused words in the English language. The word love is used to describe one's deep appreciation for everything from hot dogs to husbands, Watermelon to wives, chips to children, and money to miracles. Hollywood, the movie industry, the secular music industry, the television, the internet, bull rushes consumers every moment of the day and night with its distorted disturbing and dishonest depictions of what love really is. And those distorted, disturbing, dishonest depictions of love leads naive people down the pathway of pain, regret, and brokenness. But thanks be to God that we, his people, can know and understand what love really is. And we can know and understand what love really is by examining his word. So it is today I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and walk with me through the real-time, real-world 
world definition of love, not from Hollywood, not from the, the television, not from the Internet point of view, but real world definition of love from God's point of view. Because after all, that's what's most meaningful to us. We want to know what God has to say about love. The Apostle Paul is the writer of this text, and, and he makes it a point to begin with himself as he prepares to lay bare before his readers the definition of love. Paul begins in verse 1 stating, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass, a clinging symbols. What he's saying is that if, if, if I can speak with tongues, any kind of tongues, but I have not love, I am just making noise. The world in which Paul was born and the world in which he grew into adulthood was heavily influenced by Greek culture, which placed a high premium on the ability to speak with persuasive elegance. People would gather in a place called the Roman Agora, which literally means the place outdoors where they could hear great orators, great speakers, Wax elegant on religious, philosophical, and ideological topics. They would gather just to hear all of these great voices and all of these great orators wax elegant about all sorts of subjects. Men like Plato and Aristotle and Socrates were products of this ancient Grecian culture, great minds, philosophical minds. So it was Paul grew up hearing the best of the best make astounding verbal presentations. No question about it, Paul was one of the best proclaimers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, yet he said, if the love of God has not fashioned, fastened, and fixed in my life, is not fashioned, fastened, and fixed in my life through a genuine relationship to Jesus Christ, all I'm doing is sounding good. All I'm doing is making noise. All I'm doing is providing verbal gratification on the outside but I'm suffering spiritual bankruptcy on the inside. That's like people who talk a good game. If you just went by what they said, you would think they were highballing, living large, living the dream, living it up. But the reality is that on the inside, they are broken but they just talk a good game. And you work around people like that. You live in neighborhoods, people like that. They, they talk a good game, but on the inside, they are broken. Paul goes on to write in verse 2, And though I have the gift of 
prophecy that as I can preach, I can foretell the future as God gives it to me. And, and though I understand all mysteries and I have not all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can move mountains but have not love, Paul says, I am nothing. Paul continues the theme that the key ingredient, the underlying factor for all that we do in the service to Jesus, our king, must be motivated by the love of God in our hearts that comes only as a result of our fellowship, our relationship, our union with Jesus Christ. That's the only way to get a God paid love is that we must be in genuine fellowship with Jesus Christ. Paul emphasizes the reality that works, no matter how valid they are, won't place us in right standing with God. To get right with God, to be right with God, comes only through having a genuine, authentic, real, personal, and practical down-home relationship to Jesus Christ. In verse 3, Paul conveys the message that service and sacrifice are valid, but profit him nothing if his life is not in right standing with Jesus. Notice his words of explanation. Paul wrote, and though I bestow all of my goods to feed the poor, I'm, I'm feeding the hungry, I'm, I'm helping those who don't have enough food to eat. He says, and though I give my body to be, be born, I may be burned, I make a, a sacrifice, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Paul says, regardless of what sacrifices I make, if I don't have the love of Christ in my heart, it profits me absolutely, positively nothing. I'm just going through the motions. I'm just looking good for people to say. I'm, I'm just getting pats on the back from people. But if I don't have Jesus in me, it profits me nothing. Paul makes it clear that without the love of God lodged in our hearts, captivating our minds and motivating our actions to serve and to sacrifice there are no personal rewards from God herein lies the problem for the moralists or the law keepers or those who emphasize good works as their justification before God works alone won't do it going to church alone won't do it. Standing in defense of the poor and the weak while they are noble causes won't do it. Paul says performing works without the love of Jesus profits nothing for him and for us. So what is love? Paul begins to flesh out the definition of love. He begins to put, put flesh on it. Um, D.L. Moody once said that 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 the the, the gospel uh, has shoe leather on it, so that we can we can see it. People need to see it. Well, Paul fleshes out this definition of love so that we can see what God's love really is. He puts flesh on it, so his readers can see a vivid picture of what the love of God looks like. 
on the everyday playing fields of life what does it look like in our homes what does it look like on our jobs what does love look like in our communities what does love look like as we relate to each other be it husbands and wives or sisters and brothers and children and parents and supervisors and co-workers what does it look like well verse 4 begins by explaining, love suffers long. Paul said that's what it looks like. It, it suffers long. That means the love of Jesus living deep within the life of every born-again believer produces within us, get this, the ability to be patient. That's what it looks like. That's what he's saying. That, that's what love looks like with, with flesh on it. When you say, I love you, you are saying in actuality that God has given me the ability to be patient. Patient with you. It's more than, than Valentine's hearts. It's more than giving Valentine candy. It's more than, than love notes. Paul says it's about being patient. So when I say I love you, I am saying that I am patient with you. Long-suffering means to be slow to anger. When I say I love you, I am saying I am slow to become angry with you. That's what Paul said. That's what love looks like. Love, uh, patience looks like. Patience, a long-suffering means to be slow to anger, not losing our cool or flying off the handle. One of the best definitions I've read of patience is this. Patience is the capacity to be wronged and not retaliate. So Paul says patience with flesh on it is the ability to be wronged by you and yet not retaliate towards you. Whether that wrong is done intentionally or unintentionally. Thank God for his patience. Had it not been for God's patience, for God's long-suffering, God's patience with us, none of us would be in this sanctuary today. Here's an exclusive illustration of what God's patience with us looks like with flesh on it. For while we were yet sinners, while we were yet corrupt, while we were yet distorted, while we were yet participating in all manner of evil and vile and vicious and vindictive and hateful and hideous and hostile behaviors, while we were yet alienated from God, separated from God, yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's love. That's patience with flesh on it. 
Patience is the fruit of the Spirit that gives us staying power. Patience is the uh, attribute of having a lengthy fuse. You know what a lengthy fuse is? You've watched movies, haven't you? Where uh, the person would have a stick of dynamite in one hand that can really do some harm or some some damage, and it has a short fuse. That means it doesn't take much to set it off, and so they, they set it off, and it's a short fuse, and it blows off. But patience is the attribute of having a lengthy fuse. That means it, it takes a long, 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 long time to set you off. That's patience. Oh, we need Long fuses. We need long fuses in our homes. We need long fuses in our workplaces. We need long fuses in school. We need long fuses in the church. Oh, how great the fellowship is where people have long fuses. It takes a long, 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 long time before they explode. Not a short fuse, but a lengthy fuse that enables us to cope with, put up with, deal with mean, agitating, trifling people who try us and defy us and get on our best nerves on our best day sometime at the very end of the day. Patience gives us a long fuse. To deal with that. Oh, thank God for patience. Yet in spite of it all, God constantly calls his people to a lifestyle of long-suffering, a a, a patient interaction with others. We need to be patient with ourselves. Sometimes we are can be our own worst critics. We need to give ourselves a break and realize that there will be times when we won't measure up to our own standards. We need to be patient with ourselves. We need to get off of our own back sometime and give ourselves a break. Like the young man I met in the bank just this past week. And I started a conversation with him, and we began to talk. And he told me, I asked him what kind of work did he do, and he he told me that he was a, a metal welder. He welded metal. And so I explored a little bit deeper. I said, well, that's that's a pretty hard job. And he said, oh, yeah, it's, it's hard work. He said it pays good. He said, but it's very hard work. And then he said to me, he said, if I had to do it all over again, I would have become a doctor. Well, the truth of the matter is he won't be able to do it over again. Nor will he be come short of some type of miracle from God. He won't be becoming a doctor. So the best thing he can do is get right with God, be patient with himself, 
and be the best at whatever God calls him to be. So we didn't make the best choices. Mama said you ought to stay in school, and we didn't. And now, 30 years later, we have regret. Some felt like they didn't make the best decision in marriage for whatever reason and that marriage went awry it didn't make it but Paul says we need to be patient with ourselves we need to get over it give ourselves a break not only do we need to be patient with ourselves we need to be patient with each other Being patient does not mean making excuses or allowances for people's irresponsible behavior or lack of initiative, but it does mean enduring and suffering through relationships with each other as God makes us and molds us and builds into our characters those attributes that will make us more like him. The reality is that some of us are further along on the journey than others of us, but none of us have arrived yet. So we just need to be patient. We need to be patient with each other because the world is watching. We need to be patient with non-believers because the church is watching. We need to be patient, period, because God is watching. And it is a divine mandate from him that we be patient. Footnote. Sometimes God uses patience to promote change in the lives of hard-hearted people. Did you know that? That sometimes God will use your patience at home, at your workplace, in the church, to promote change in the life of some hard-hearted person. If you read the biography of Abraham Lincoln, you have come across the bitter resentment shown towards him by Edwin Stanton. Stanton was a political rival of Lincoln's, and he called him, who called him a clown. He even nicknamed Lincoln, President Lincoln at that time, the original gorilla. That was his name, the nickname that he gave his political rival, the original Gorilla. He said that one particular, one person was a, a particular man was a fool to wander around Africa trying to capture a gorilla when he could have easily found one at Springfield, Illinois, where Lincoln lived. Lincoln, because of his patience, said nothing in retaliation. In fact, after Abraham Lincoln became president of the United States, he eventually chose Edward Stanton to be his secretary of war. When friends and colleagues asked him why, the president simply responded because he was the best man for the job. The years wore on and the night came when an assassin's bullet murdered 
President Lincoln. And it was not long before Edwin Stanton stood looking down on the president's silent face and said through his tears, Stanton's words, and I quote, There lies the greatest ruler of men the world has ever seen. Ephesians 4.2 drives the point of patience home for the church with these words. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, that is patience, bear with one another in love. The second, Paul says, Love is kind. He's fleshing it out for us. He's saying it's not about hearts. It's not about Valentine's candy. That's an expression of it. But the flesh on love is that love is kind. The word kind in verse 4 means being gentle and full of charitable service towards one another. We live in a world where people are harsh and hateful, and cruel, and callous, and self-centered, and self-seeking, and hard, and, and hateful. Yet Paul tells us that God's love produces an undeniable difference within the congregation of God's people, that is, within the church, within the fellowship of believers in Jesus Christ, and that difference is a noticeable kindness we show towards each other. That's the difference. It's that kindness. Paul elaborates more on kindness in Ephesians 4.32, saying being kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as Christ forgave God, as God in Christ forgave you. Paul says in the church where Jesus Christ abides that kindness ought to be reciprocal. That's what he's saying. Kindness ought to be reciprocal. That is, as God through, and the table represents this today, as God through the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus allows his kindness, his tenderheartedness, his forgiveness to flow into our lives, we as the church ought to allow kindness, tenderheartedness, forgiveness to flow from us into the direction of each other. That's what he's saying. We're coming to the table to celebrate how Jesus' love flowed to us, how his kindness flowed to us. Paul says it ought to be reciprocal. It ought not flow in, but it ought to flow out. That is, Christ was kind to us. We ought to be kind to one another. And with such is the case, In the church, and when such is the case in our homes, when such is the case, less drama, less pettiness, less relational disturbances, less uh, ill behavior in the body, the less behavior in the body that dishonors God and distracts from the joy of the Lord and the joy of the fellowship will be. Be less distraction. The more we show kindness, the less drama, the less 
trauma, the less pettiness, the less relational disturbances will be in the body of Christ. And even in our homes, the less it will be between husbands and wives, the less it will be between children and parents. Now, while our kindness should be displayed among us, it should not be limited to us in the church. While we should show kindness to each other in the Christian camp, our kind disposition indeed should also flow outside of the Christian camp. Why? Because outside the camp is where sin-sick, selfish, and unsettled people of the world get to witness us up close and personal and see the kindness of Jesus Christ manifested in and through us. They won't see it in here because they are not here. Out there, they need to see it in the mix of mean and messed up people. They need to see love with flesh on it manifesting itself through kindness. Practice sharing a kind smile. Practice saying a kind word. Practice doing a kind deed this week and see the result. Often past people on my walk or on my jog, and sometimes they appear to be in another world. Sometimes they look like, by their facial expressions, people who don't want to be bothered, people who would bite your head off if given a chance. Oh, how we look at people's externals and size them up. Am I by myself? Is there anybody here that looks at people and say they look mean and they are one way? They don't like this type of people. They won't like that type of people. But sometimes I say a kind word anyway. And most of the time, the response is a smile. Because people need kindness. And Jesus has commissioned us to give it out. People need patience. If patience had a twin, it would be kindness. Because while patience gives us the power to put up with people, kindness grants us the pleasure of pouring into people. And that's what the Lord wants us to do. Pour some kindness into a church member today, just with a smile, a handshake. But don't limit it to the church. Pour some kindness into somebody at work tomorrow, at school tomorrow, even if they look like they don't need it and won't respond back. Pour it out anyway. And see what God will do with it. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is the epitome of kindness. For as the table reminds us today, he hung there on Calvary's cross. Kind as he could be, suffering in his body, shedding his blood to save us from our sin. As wretched as we were, as hateful as we were, his kindness showed there as he suffered and bled and died for you and me. Interesting thing I've heard 
says, and this is one of Pastor Stevens' favorite sayings, he had the power. Ah. He had the power. He had the authority. He had the command and the control to call 10,000 angels. He had the power to annihilate his tormentors. He had the power to obliviate his torturers. He had the power to dominate his taunters. But instead, he showed them kindness. He showed us kindness. He stayed right there on the cross. And even as he died for those who crucified him and for those of us who are here today, even then, he said before he died, he prayed, Father, forgive them. For they 